This is kind of an odd time in Fish's history. I came into Wilco with me being the guy with the story. It was sometimes uh, appropriate for Soundgarden, sometimes not. 20 years writing about music. Dozens of cassettes in a drawer. Get ready for conversations that time nearly forgot. Dave's old interview tapes. Hi, I'm Indianapolis Star reporter Dave Lindquist, and welcome to Dave's Old Interview Tapes, a podcast that digs up musical conversations from an era when corn was a massive band and high fructose corn syrup was a minor problem. Today's episode revisits a 1998 interview with John Fogarty, the Rock and Roll Hall of Famer who sold millions of albums with Creedence Clearwater Revival and as a solo artist. We'll hear John talk about playing rock concerts in the 1960s. A Creedence concert in 1969 was about 55 minutes long. Hear his philosophy on performing today. The best way to be is full of lots of energy and make people feel exhilarated. And learn that he has a good sense of humor about misheard lyrics. You know, enough people told me that's what they thought yeah. I was singing yeah. in the first place. I decided to do it. Our in-studio guest for this episode of Dave's Old Interview Tapes is Jenny DeVoe, the talented singer-songwriter with an unforgettable rock meets gospel meets blues voice. Jenny, how are you? I'm good, Dave. How are you? I'm so excited. I am so excited. This is this is very homey to me, being in a, a booth with microphones and recording equipment. So thanks for having me. Well, I got to tell you, when I was researching the timeline for this episode, the Indy Star's offices are in Circle Center Mall. We, right. We, I used to shop right here, you I did think, more, where we're sitting. <laughs> you did more than shop here. Yeah. So we're in the old Nordstrom site. Right. And uh, this interview with John Fogarty... It's the cornerstone of the entire Dave's old interview tapes. Well, then I'm very project. honored to be here, and I love Credence. I started at the Indianapolis Star on May 4th, 1998. Two days before my birthday in the year that I put out my first record. Yeah, you're getting ahead of the story. Okay. <laughs> I started on May 4th. This interview with John Fogarty happened on May 13, 1998. This was the first big-time phone interview I ever did at the Indianapolis Star. Oh, you did not sound like a novice. Well, that's, that's kind of you to say, but I remember the nerves and the butterflies like it was yesterday. It's interesting because when people ask me, hey, have you been nervous talking to celebrities? Right. Fogarty is the first one I mentioned, I think, because it was the first. Uh, a few years ago, I got to be on the phone with uh, Steve Martin and Martin Short. Oh, my gosh. And it was just a similar feeling. And, right. and both of them gave me everything I wanted in right. terms of being on engaging. Yes. Right. All right. So that's May of 1998. Got ya. And right around that time, I was getting my footing at the Indianapolis Star. And you reached out to me. You were going to put out this record called Does She Walk on Water? Yeah. Well, I remember that. And it's funny because right now... And you and I have talked about this a little, and that is how to reinvent yourself. We were mm -hmm. just kind of talking about that. At that moment, all I knew with blinders on was I got to make music. I've been waiting to do this forever. And it just kind of, I was working at a music studio. Everything started falling into place. And I didn't know anything about hiring publicists or, or doing, I, I did know about record labels after I put the record out. I mean, I, I had read enough to know that I was not really that interested in doing that shopping part. Like I was kind of urgent about it. Like 
I got to get going. Sure. I got to get this out. And hadn't really had a lot of plans to get outside of Indianapolis. But my record sonically with the engineer that I used was just up to that level was great. And I was like, found out who you were, called you and sent you the record. And just to me, like when I think back, it's like, I'm glad I was kind of naive about the process because a lot of people just have somebody else do that for them. Right. And it was just like, you know, I don't know. It was just kind of, I'm kind of grateful for the things I didn't know and the maybe proper way to do stuff. What kills me is, okay, here's a, musician in this town where I just moved and you're nudging me as a person should. I mean, you you were proud of that recording. I was. And like you were just talking about, if an independent musician can make a record that sounds like a, a big time record, right? that's almost half the battle. It is. But it kills me that it turned out that you were so great. Thank you. Because that gave me a lot of faith in like oh yeah there's like where you where you're living and who <laughs> yeah. you're going to deal with right but it didn't happen overnight the no. uh the getting dave to uh write about jenny I, I finally got around to it yeah and i love your writing the thing is i still use your quotes i mean one of the the my favorite things around which is not everybody's favorite thing is collecting press uh-huh i love to collect press as long as they're talking about my music and not me like personally or physically or in a bad way so I'm always happy when I can tell somebody's thought for themselves you know what I mean like you thought it for yourself and it's like I always use words to me or everything so I use all the words that I can gather in life to write songs and then I you know gather words and I mean I read every night and I'm yeah. I'm just into you know words can start a war or words can you know, make peace. So I like it. I just, um, I appreciated your words and I use them to this day. Oh, right on. Thank yeah. you. So I finally profiled you, Jenny, in November of 1998. I just looked up this clip. It was previewing a performance at World Mardi Gras. Yeah. Circle in Center Mall. Mall. <laughs> in the Circle Center Mall. And I remember what a chore it was to get up into that room. That's what I always heard. It was yeah. like a load-in nightmare. Oh, it was. There are so many jokes for musicians where there's one about if if you uh, meet St. Peter at, at the Pearly Gates, um, you know, he, he, they talk about like all the different people. Mother Teresa comes in. She just comes to the front gate. And then you go to the front gate and they're like, oh, what did you do? And they're the musicians like, well, I was a musician. They're like, oh, you're going to have to go down through the kitchen and up through the, <laughs> up through the loading dock. It's It's just... If we, as artists, ever get to just pull up in a bus and there's the stage, <laughs> it's almost better than the show. Yeah. It's it's just fantastic. Yeah, you work for it, that's for sure. But yeah, the world Mardi Gras was kind of cool. But And it, it would have people take their time and get through, you know, all the hard ways you have to get into this parking garage, all these elevators and all that. And we'd have a crowd. It was crazy. It was on the fourth floor. Yeah. I think it was a noisy room. I remember covering uh, Salt and Peppa. Oh my gosh, I loved them. Yeah, yeah. But I th before before I came to town, I believe like James Brown might have played there. Well, then James Brown and I were on the same stage. See, perfect. <laughs> Rock and roll should be a total energy, you know, everything you can bring to it, experience. 
and that's what I do. I mean, I, you know, I, you learn from people like James Brown and Elvis. They were supreme, uh, you know, practitioners of all that energy. To me, that, I mean, that's the number one way to be. My chance to interview John Fogarty happened just a few weeks before he released a live album called Premonition in 1998. He was 52 years old at this time. And it's so funny to me to think about myself yeah. 21 years ago and my perception of what a 52-year-old man was. Right. I covered Jeff Tweedy last night, who's 51. Right. And it's just, people are younger today, right? People are younger, and I think that has been with, at some point when all the labels kind of had to move to the side, there was this flood of artists and the internet and just this flood of, oh my gosh, there are kids like sitting in their bathrooms recording songs and they're fantastic, you know, and it just seems that artists don't want to have an expiration date. And I think they try very hard to just meld in with all the art. But yeah, it is funny as we get older, like what your perception of I remember seeing Bonnie Raitt on stage, who is my all-time idol. Mm -hmm. And I remember she just announced right to the crowd. She's like, you know, I'm 52 today. And and it was like, you're 52? You're Bonnie Raitt. Like, you're just no age. Like, you're just no age. You're just... And and even though I heard that then, I've lost track of what her age is because she... What she does just... Transcends. Eliminates. Yeah, it transcends. And that is your best hope. I mean, you just want to keep going. And you can't stay still, although some bands do stay still and just kind of keep doing the same yeah. thing. I, that, to me, is scary and depressing. So I have a I have a panic about, you know, not being relevant. So I talked to one of my artist friends yesterday, and uh, she's a fantastic fiddle player. And we were talking about being relevant. It really has to do with just, I have to go back to making my first record. You have to put your blinders on and mm. just do it for yourself. One of the things I like to talk about is this paradox of songwriting that when you write a lyric that's personal, it ends up appealing to more people because every listener, I guess, sees themselves in your personal statement as opposed to a broad statement that doesn't connect because people aren't invested in it. I believe that this is when when you write from a personal perspective that's when you connect. And I just have a love for so many different artists. I just read this thing by Justin Timberlake. I bought his big book of his life and mm-hmm. I love him and I love his attitude and his joy. He was talking about you know people think at the end of their week like I'm going to go to a concert, I'm going to escape, I'm going to but what people are really doing is not looking for an escape because music like when you go to a concert what you're really doing is looking for that connection and you've latched onto somebody's song because it has said something that made sense to you it and you know hopefully the music's fantastic too but people grab onto lyrics and it's usually because they relate to it just you know i mean john prine's lyrics oh, yeah. if you think about it it's just kind of that pulls the plug on the highfalutin kind of you know clever lyric writing he's so relatable and unfancy that that is 
just the the bar set at the highest where it's like oh my gosh yeah you know it's I think writing about love and relationships and and heart heartbreak you know it might sound boring but that's really the stuff that makes humans tick and keep going and strive for what they strive for I mean it's it's just the normal everyday stuff so it the thing is right personal and then somebody will find it and yeah you know, you might lose somebody with the next record or the next song, but you can't think like that. Otherwise, you become cheesy, and then you do start watering it down. And if you try too hard to reach everybody, you will inevitably miss, for sure. Well, in the 1960s, Creedence Clearwater Revival certainly just knocked one out of the park after another with their vivid storytelling and songwriting. And as a new reporter at the Indy Star... John Fogarty was going to come to Deer Creek, as it was known then, our music uh, amphitheater in Noblesville. And this Premonition album was going to be released. And, oh, they sent me an advanced copy. When I was speaking with John, it was a cool way to talk to John Fogarty about his past in a new context, because here's a new record that has live versions of all his classic songs. The conversation was framed very much in, oh, John, I've heard your record and I listened to your banter between songs on this live record, and I'm going to ask you about that. It was a, I guess the training wheels were on for a reporter, and again, I was grateful that I was in the hands of this Hall of Fame right? you giant didn't, you John didn't Fogarty. Sound, you didn't sound lost, though. You just sounded like that you did this every day. I didn't know that was your... <laughs> Your first time talking to, and what a guy to talk to for the first time. Let's hear John Fogarty talk about an amplifier. That doesn't sound too exciting, but it is. You mentioned uh, between a song that you're playing with the same amp you've had pretty much your entire career. Right. Is that right? That's true. Uh, I'm sure there's some stories that go with that. Well, the that as a, an old custom amp that I that's the brand K U S T O M. I purchased that in 1968, and uh, actually in, ni- in late 1967. Okay. And uh, basically uh, worked up my version of Suzy Q on it, among other things. But Suzy Q was the first thing we recorded using that amp. Uh-huh. And uh, eventually that led to being able to make the first album on which also I put a spell on you is there. So that's exactly the same amplifier, uh, you know, top and bottom yeah. that I used for those recordings and then played you know, on continual tour through the years uh, 68, 69, 70, 71, 72, I suppose. Right, right. And uh, the amplifier sort of went into the closet about the same time that uh, Creedence Clearwater went into the closet. Okay. And uh, I've used it sparingly over the years, but now that I'm out touring, playing, especially Suzy Q and Spell, uh, it's very necessary that I use that amp. It's very desirable to Uh have that same sound. John Forgetty didn't play CCR songs from 1972 until 1987. The 87 show was a special Vietnam veterans gig in D.C. And in the mid-80s, of course, he had Centerfield and Eye of the Zombie. But then it was about another decade of inactivity until 97 when he released 
the Blue Moon Swamp album. And only then did he start playing CCR songs again. So it's pretty it's pretty wild that, like he said, he put this amp away and now it's back. Do you have equipment that you love? I have one guitar that I play and I bought it from my guitar player. And he has so many guitars and is such a good player that... Um, he just, I think, thought he didn't need this Gretsch. It's a, it's a big-bodied Gretsch, yeah. and it's got the triangular hole. I, I'm not a great guitar player. I, I use it to write songs, and I play rhythm on stage. But he misses that guitar, and I get weird compliments on it. Sure. It's got a really beefy sound. I love a baritone electric guitar. Yeah. But, yeah, there's a sound to it. I sold the only other guitar that I really had gravitated to it's one that i took to england and it was a 1930 national and i sold it to somebody um just because i was going to make another record but it is on my strange sunshine record and that was a regret it's just i'm kind of a minimalist Mm -hmm. like i keep very few things around yeah but that sound in that guitar made me write a different way and it's funny because i know listening to that interview with Fogarty, it was he was like I had to bring that amp back out because there was a sound right. that just specific uh, sound for things, and that is very important to me when I'm making records. There are certain sounds I already know from working with John Parrish, not on my first two records, but from working with Parrish, he made me. He I look up to him so much because he keeps me in line with a scattered. You know, I have a scattered brain, and he's got a very We're going to write this down. Mm -hmm. He's been a professor before. But write down the sounds that you like in reference, like where you heard it. And it's like I might go T-Bone Burnett or I might say a CCR for Mm -hmm. sure. That plate reverb, that real quick slap back sound is one of my favorite things. And we put that on um, Radiator, my recent record. They have big metal plates that go fit. They're bigger than this room. They used to use that on like a Motown Echo uh, for vocals. Well, how about that? It literally bounces and then they capture the sound. It's crazy. I know more about engineering than, than I let on. I can't do it myself, but it's like I know the sounds that I want and I'll say, maybe we should use this amp or this, this, and this. And, um, you know, the other thing I've read a lot about recording has been from the Jimmy Page interviews where he talks about miking John Bonham's drums and okay. stuff. Okay, yeah. As a as an acoustic instrument, not just like as a thing that's that. It's like this has a tone. This has, it makes notes. It's like we have to we have to treat it like an instrument, not just like the beat. Right. So I completely capture get, the entire wave, not yeah. just the hit. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's just like, you know, Dick Dale had a certain thing that he did with his guitar, and it's like there's and Link Ray, there are these echoey things, sure. and I love that about about credence that was that swampy stuff i always always loved dudes from northern california that transported you to uh the bayou (laughs) yeah and loved some old swampy movie that just you know there's a there's times in your young young life where you your imagination is like i imagine this is what i'm going to be he imagined he was going to be some uh, swampy cowboy and some like southern <laughs> and it's like he wasn't but it didn't matter yeah. I, I think that is a creative mind like i don't slide him for that some people are like oh you're not authentic it's like whatever <laughs> well all right well i'm gonna say that the gretsch visually is one of the most aesthetically pleasing guitars yeah it is yeah it's a 
I don't know if you'd call it a sexy guitar, but it is just got like something about it that is comforting. Yeah. Yeah. And we need to back up and tell people about John Parrish. Okay. A producer who lives in England and you've traveled over there to make records with him. Three records. We're talking about a fourth. He's recorded with a lot of different people, but he's only made multiple records with me and Polly, PJ Harvey, and just a couple other people. And so I'm very grateful just for him that just this human that came into my life. Yeah. He really saw me as an artist and I really needed that at that time, you know, cause I needed to grow and, and bust out. And I love going to England to record with him. When people ask me like, who are your favorite musicians? Cause that's a question that people ask me and it's a hard question, but on my short list, I always mention PJ Harvey. And when you told me that you were going to make a record with John Parrish, I was so You knew, but I was not so everybody happy. <laughs> I know and I remember not I remember that and I remember you also loving Liz Fair. Yeah. And I remember um telling you that I was gonna go work with him and you're like, John Parrish with PJ Harvey. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. But I didn't know, you know, not everybody reads that deeply into sure. the liner notes, you know, and that to me is where all the treasures are. Like that's where you find who played what and 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 then you go find more about them and then you read more about them and you're like, ooh, I like his process. Like I remember reading about his process with Tracy Chapman and I already had the PJ records, but the way he had done the Let It Rain record with yeah. Tracy Chapman was so where I needed to be because I had worked too hard and too long on the first two records and I, I didn't I don't I didn't have the patience for that. And I hmm. kinda had this thought, this piece of art I just want to make it. It's not going to be perfect. I just want to do something, get it done, like in a month, and go. And uh, he was, you know, we're going to do this. It's, we're all going to be on the spot when we record. We're going to do this. Like, you're going to sing, and we're going to keep one of your vocals. So we do the song, like, two, three, tops, four times. No kidding. That And that you get good at after performing all the time. So I was like, yeah, that's what I want to do. We might tweak a couple things, but I had guys right beside me playing stuff. So there's there's not a lot of fixing to do. Perfect segue to when musicians in the 1960s, you made the song together. Elvis, you had only You only had X many uh, tracks on right. your recorder. Talking to John Fogarty, it was a chance to ask about what live performance was like in those days. Last summer, I talked to Robbie Krieger because he was coming to play the okay. Indiana State Fair. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He played the Indiana State Fair, and we were talking about amplifiers. We were talking about amplifiers, and he was telling me that he had an amplifier deal, but he didn't really like the live uh, output of these amplifiers, so he had a... He had an endorsement from... He had an endorsement from somebody, yeah. and... They cut him out and put like a re- the amplifier he liked inside. Right. So that was pretty crazy. Right. But in these arenas and, you know, the Coliseum at the fairgrounds, either they weren't made for rock and roll or the amplification hadn't caught up. And he told me that Jim Morrison, in addition to all his other antics on stage, he would want to get as close to the front of the stage as possible just to hear the band there's something else happening when you're on stage. There are all these monitors. You're getting this kind of dry sound. Mm-hmm. If you're an electric guitar player, you're kind of lucky because you can get the warmth 
and the sound that you want out of here. And then your engineer out there is going to go through the mains, all the main speakers that the audience is hearing. Our band has gone full circle to this low stage volume. It's the best way hmm. to feel and hear what the audience is listening to. And for a vocalist, you can say your voice is your instrument, but it's more than that. Every single room that you play is going to have a different sound system. It's going to have a different engineer. It's going to have a different right. shape of the room. Right. Everything's different. So sound checks are important to get like a, a thing where you're like, it's pleasing to you that you know you at least have enough power out there where you can do the nuanced stuff. And every once in a while that just goes away and it, it is the horrible part of doing a live show right. because you don't get to, you might push your voice too hard and then all of a sudden somebody sends you the board feed, which was just you without that room. Well, the room is your instrument. The yeah. room has got the, the sound from the PA and you need that because you want to hear what the audience is hearing so you can tweak it and twist it and turn it. So it, it makes you really have to connect so i like that too i, I like to hear what they're hearing yeah. so that i can sing better acoustics and sound mix are one of my least favorite things to write about when i cover shows but it's important because yeah that's part of the it's a big part of the audience experience and especially if you've been listening to a record and the and the artists loved their record like when i did fireworks my fireworks and karate supplies record I loved all the sounds on there. I loved all these crunchy um, tremolo sounds and these different delays on a vocal or this or that. To recreate that in a live show can be sort of a letdown. Hmm. So you, you have to compromise sometimes. I mean, you can't spend all day doing it unless you really are, you know, James Taylor or something like that. But um, you can get close to it. I have a, a sound man that travels with us for that reason. Nice. He knows where, you know, we put like a telephone sound on this song, Nobody Loves You When You're Down, so it sounds like an old yeah, Louis yeah. Armstrong. Yeah. And so he can do that real quickly. Whereas if we're traveling someplace, which we will this summer, um, we'll be up against, they're not going to know that. Yeah. And also if it's a festival, if they have all artists all day, sure, sure. and you go up with <laughs> up to them with a, a too long a list of particulars, yeah they'll tune you out so you have to choose your battles for sound but sound is so important to the artist it really is i loved hearing john fogarty talking about getting in and getting out of a show in the 60s with ccr a credence concert in 1969 was about 55 minutes long uh -huh. um, after a certain point in time uh, meaning as the popularity got into the, you know, the mega strata, uh, there was, there, it was no longer possible to do encores simply because it, everything would get chaotic. Yeah. Uh, I really took my cue from the Beatles and the Stones who had a couple of years earlier dropped doing encores simply because when you come back out, uh, you know, all the rules, all the security had yep. broken down. Uh -huh. So we weren't on stage all that long, and I tried to hit them with every single yeah. hit that we had. Okay. Uh, I probably never took the time, let's say, to tell a story about an amplifier. Right, right. <laughs> I attended that uh, Fogarty show in 98, and one year he came with uh, John Mellencamp as kind of a, you know, billing is billing. I don't know if it was a double bill, yeah. but Fogarty played first. Yeah. And then Mellencamp. And then last summer, Fogarty played here in Indiana 
And whether that carries over from his 51-minute CCR shows in the 60s, when this man is on stage, it is one after another. Yeah. It is pushing the pace. Remember that song? Here's another one you love. Here right. comes one. You'll never forget it. I got another one. Wall All these wall. songs about rain, one after another. Right. He's um, prolific, and his, to me, his voice is CCR. Just the sound that he had when he stopped playing CCR stuff. Yeah. It was like, I just thought it was going to be over, you know. That interesting stuff, that behind the scenes stuff, I like reading about that stuff because there are dynamics in bands. I know he knew this is already working. Like we're, this works like my voice, me writing the songs, like yeah. it's a dictatorship. And, uh, <laughs> and that, and my keyboard player in my band has said that about ours. And it's, it's just the truth. It's like, there has to be a focus. Benevolent dictator. A bene- I'm a benevolent <laughs> dictator. I've managed to keep all my band members longer than, longer than CCR stay together. But I actually understand all that passion when you're working with, I used to think working with guys would be like, I, I like working with guys. I always wanted to be like one of the boys in the band on stage. I did not want to be a groupie. It was like, ah, oh, that's boring. Hmm. You know, I want to want to go up and do that. And it's like, it's cool to work with guys because they get over stuff so fast. That's not true with artists. It's different. It's different than like a normal like riff with, with a guy. It's like, it's different. You're working with artists. They are, their emotion is equatable to yours as a, as a woman, cause they're very vulnerable, like when giving ideas and stuff. So I had to learn uh-huh. that I couldn't be as like, oh, I don't like that. Let's go to the next one. I couldn't do that as easily as I had anticipated. So I had to really learn to navigate people's personalities and moments. And I think that happened in the Beatles happened with credence and, um, hurt feelings, you know, all that anger, like he's talked about being angry before. In yeah. some past things. And that really all stems from just being hurt. It's like, that's my psychology part coming out. But it's like, oh, you just, they just kept digging at each other. Well, the shorthand, if I'm correct, is they put out all of these great albums, huge hits. These are all John Fogarty songs. And the other guys in the band, one of the guys in the band happens to be John's brother. Right, Tom. Tom. They say, hey, John, let's make an album where we all do songs. Right. <laughs> and John let him try it. And it was a big failure. It was the end of yeah. CCR. I put a spell on you. One of the famous covers that CCR did was uh, I Put a Spell on You, originally recorded by Screamin' Jay Hawkins. I'm pretty sure CCR performed that at uh, Woodstock in 1969. Looking back at Cub reporter Dave Lindquist in 1998, we were one summer away from uh, a big anniversary of Woodstock, and I didn't ask John Fogarty about Woodstock. So, Oh, so you have a I little remorse that about one. that. You can always call him back and go, hey, <laughs> I forgot to ask you something. He'll be like, who are you? You'll be like, Dave, Dave, nine from 98. And he'll be like, oh, okay. Well, That's I Put funny. a Spell on You is a song we do now. It's, nice. It's a timeless song. And and the best sound was Credence doing I Put a Spell on You. The motion we do it in is more like Nina Simone. Mm-hmm. But that song is just killer. And they just killed it. I used to think, of course, when you're little and you're listening to that stuff, you're like, oh, that's their song. You don't realize how many other writers are 
involved in what your your people listening to hit songs are are doing it's like that's not really their song but it's so cool because they they did it i think i remember in the 80s or the 90s fogarty talking about wanting to reclaim ccr songs because someone you know mentioned to him that you know proud mary was a ike and tina turner song right (laughs) right and that's what i used to think i mean i i think i probably heard that first let's dig into uh i put a spell on you okay because you are such a powerful vocalist when fogarty does it again my context for this interview was uh, the premonition right live album version it sounds like he has been transported yeah. somewhere. It's the song. And he talked a little bit about that. Because you really do alter. You go, you travel somewhere and don't realize until you're back in reality uh-huh. that you've, you know, left. And I don't mean this in any spooky way, like I'm visiting other planets, right. or you know, all that um, uh, out-of-body stuff. Actually, it's kind of like out-of-body. But, I mean, I know I'm standing right there, so, but your consciousness goes, uh, it drifts. You concentrate on the song. I think that's probably like a person who might be reading a book that's really involving Uh and then you know you suddenly you're you don't realize it but you've you've passed uh, you know a few pages or maybe a couple of chapters without realizing that you're sitting there at midnight under a lamp in your living room you know and that you've because you're so involved with the story you're off your your mind is taking over does it happen to you absolutely I choose songs that do that to me. I, you know, I don't think I'll ever look back and say, oh, that was corny. There's no reason to get on stage if you're not going to be vulnerable. There's no reason to get up on stage if you're going to protect yourself. You know, it can, you're going to have great shows and you're going to have shows where you didn't feel like you received that same thing back from an audience. But the only goal, as time went on for me getting up on stage, it was like, I mean, I'm so at home on stage that it's normal for me. I feel like I could be in my pajamas on Mm -hmm. stage because I feel comfortable and I'm going to be real. And you just and you pick songs that take you somewhere. And there are some songs that I, you know, I might do at the end of a show because I don't have any songs I've written that are (laughs) will do that much to me. I got you. We might do Purple Rain at the end of a show or we might do. Mercy Now by Mary Gautier or Patty Griffin's Up to the Mountain. There's a point where, and and that keeps you going as a songwriter too. I've written some songs that have really touched some people and I'm very grateful for that. But there are also songs that I've written that I can't go back and do because I'm just not feeling them right now. I'm kind of not that, I'm not that youngster anymore. So I have different emotions in me now and looking for new cover songs to do new songs to cover. Mm-hmm. Like I put a spell on you or something or they're like, or a uh, new day feeling good. The one oh, Buble yeah. does. Yeah. We're doing that now because Nina Simone did that too. I'm a big Nina fan, but yeah, that just emotion is the whole thing. That's the whole reason to be on stage. You've given us a masterclass. Dave's old interview tapes quote just a moment ago when you said, there's no reason to go on stage if you're going to protect yourself. Yeah. You have to be vulnerable. Drop your guard. I love it. And it's the only way to to do your job properly. I came to Indianapolis in 1998. I knew that 
a big part of my job now was going to be writing about John Mellencamp, Indiana's rock star. Right. I grew up in central Illinois. Uh, I've talked on the podcast before about being in the future farmers of America and how important the Scarecrow record was to me. And this is wild. Now I'm writing about music in Indiana. Of course, one of the major players in the Mellencamp story is drummer Kenny Aronoff. Right. And he had played with John Fogarty. But that summer, he had just taken a gig with the Smashing Pumpkins. I was super grateful for the way that Fogarty talked about all of this. I, I really hope they treat him good, because I always try to. He's yeah. my he's my friend. Uh, the, I must say the Pumpkins haven't shown themselves to be a real stable environment. Exactly. And I'm you know I'm frankly kind of worried. I just hope they live up to the promises that they've given him. Uh, you know, again, he's a great musician and a great friend of mine. And I, you know, I would be really pissed off uh, to have anything uh, not good happen to right. Kenny. Now, Jenny, you have a story with Kenny around this time. Kenny Aronoff was sort of the just kind of the dream guy. I mean, you know, it's it's kind of like you know that John Mellencamp and you know that um, Kenny Aronoff are are from here, but you don't ever really think, I'm going to go do some shows with those guys, you know? (laughs) And again, so for my second record, I just still had my kind of naive blinders on. I was just ambitious in, I think, meeting people and working with different people. And my band has always been really good about, my live band that I've had forever has always been really good about understanding. We got through those bumps early where it's like, I'm going to record with a bunch of different people Mm -hmm. because we're all going to learn from them. Brett will say that about guitar. He'll be like, have so-and-so do that guitar and then I'll just learn it. Oh, nice. You know, and that's big. It's like there's certain guys that are just the masters of what they do, Kenny being one of them. So I remember, how did I even get his number? I don't know, but I called him, (laughs) which is the kind of the story of my life. I don't know how I got his number. I called him and he was just so nice and he said well I'm in I'm in LA right now and he said I'm touring with Melissa Etheridge and I was like well that's cool I said if I can uh, work with you sometime I said I'm making this record right now and he said well he said I have to come home he's going to come see his son Nick and he said I have to come home for uh, three days next week he said I could do it then I mean he's that kind of worker oh he's just like boom 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 and so I had met him once but hadn't talked about recording with him so he he said if you and your husband want to pick me up at the airport we'll just go to the studio so I arranged the whole thing we went back down to Bloomington he had listened to all my stuff like he did not (laughs) take for granted that just some girl you know I'm just gonna uh, do this stuff he played on five of my songs at the very first song I remember thinking oh I don't I don't like this that much. I remember thinking, how am I going to say this? Because like I told you before, people are sensitive. I had already experienced that and I was a little hesitant. And he said, do you like what I'm doing? And I went, you know, could we empty it out a little bit? Could we maybe not accentuate this or that? And he's like, absolutely. He said, I can do whatever you want. And the great thing about Kenny is he's got so much game that he doesn't take, if you don't like a rhythm, it's not like, he didn't invent it. He's just like, I want to do what's right for yeah. you in your head for your song. And we did it. And he was awesome. I think we hung out for three days doing five nice. songs. He was fantastically uh, warm. He shared lots of stories. So I got to hear about 
the pumpkins must have already happened because sure. I had. You talked about a couple things. In the the biggest thing about Kenny that I realized from, like why he was giving so much, I think to me, was that I was so respectful to him, hmm. and that is, I think, the name of the game for him. Yeah. I think if he feels that a situation isn't working for him, uh, respect wise, then he'll he'll go as well. He should because he's in you know high demand always. He's just a good guy. I advise anyone to follow Kenny Aronoff on his social media because the man is the best example of hard work plus talent equals achievement. He lives in Los Angeles. I guarantee every day you'll wake up on East Coast time and he's three hours behind, but he's already ahead of you. The man is a machine. He is. He's grateful for getting to do what he's doing. He knows, you know, you can look at people who kind of fade away in in the... the sure the stories of the annals of rock and roll. And it's because uh, they start buying into their own hype, maybe. And he always seems grateful, like a worker, like you, you should maybe approach your job every day, like somebody could come and replace me. And it's that relevant thing again, like he's relevant still, and he probably always will be. On the topic of the Smashing Pumpkins, and John's kind of wary comment there, uh, we should probably say, Pumpkins are a story where drugs did affect the band. Uh, Touring keyboard player Jonathan Melvoy died in 1996 while the band was on tour of a heroin overdose. The original drummer, Jimmy Chamberlain, struggled with substance abuse. So I think Kenny played one summer, I think, with the Pumpkins. Kenny came back to Fogarty and played for many years in his uh, touring band. I know last summer Kenny played in Indianapolis with John... Uh, this spring, they're not together. Kenny, this spring, is playing the Experience Hendrix tour with, uh, you know, huge heavyweight guitar players. So Nice. Well, you know, when you become Kenny Arnoff, yeah, you can say, I'm going to do this for this long, and then I'm going to go do this. And I have great respect and understanding of that like you might get to have your guys go with you I I have different sets of guys but this I have a very small corral but when you become big like Kenny and it's wonderful that he can choose to like choose his atmosphere too Mm -hmm. I'm a big proponent of none of that stuff on stage you know I mean I there are rare moments like within a year where we might play the Rathskeller where I have a shot of tequila when the show's almost over. But a lot of artists, a lot of comedians, I mean, I'm always reading about people's lives, definitely struggle with alcohol and substance abuse. It's just because they're sensitive and easily depressed and, you know, creative. these creative souls uh, definitely struggle sometimes. It's, it's just a real thing. That was my minor in college was substance abuse counseling mm. um, because I, as a creative person, found out I was a super codependent person so the people I would gravitate to were super fun but (laughs) had a lot of problems you know so I had to kind of figure that out figure out how to change my direction which I think everybody's grateful for I'm grateful for it John Fogarty never known as a problem with uh, those types of struggles he did give me a frank comment about fracture relationships including bandmates his brother Tom being one and uh, a record label my problems have been, uh, most, most of them have been 
uh, of a less volatile, well, I don't know how to say it, just different, more sinister, really. Uh, you know, betrayal by friends, betrayal by associates, uh, and a lot of stuff that just holds you down. Yeah. Believe me, I've wanted to become, uh, or <laughs> felt like I could use the excuse of becoming a heroin addict uh -huh. over the years, but, you know, it's kind of not my... Uh, I don't know, but luckily I avoided that, I suppose. Okay. But you know why? It's probably because I was so angry, I always felt like I had to get up and go punch somebody in the eye if I could just find the right guy to punch. It's funny to be an artist, and I've been kind of protected by being naive, like I told you when I came into the, the whole scene. And I think I've remained pretty lucky in that the people I've surrounded myself with for the most part mm -hmm. have had good intentions however without any specifics there have been a couple of um, reminders that they're out there in the business world of music which is you know rough it's the worst business in the world it's the dirtiest business the comedy business and the music business kind of have always gone hand in hand that performer thing and way back when like in the 50s the the mob would run you know rooms they ran rooms and so i've been the artist is always the one who gets taken advantage of absolutely because the artist is naive and the artist is desperate for a stage and so um knowing that people will definitely go well come come do this for free you know we'll <laughs> give you exposure that's the story so you just have to draw your lines as you get more quote unquote famous but i you know, I have had a couple of near backstabbings where like, I had no idea like that person would either say something about me like that or, or try to get or, or exclude you from stuff. I mean, you just, you can't be, you can't be lucky all the time. I mean, you definitely in this business have to have a thick skin and at the same time, keep yourself vulnerable. It's kind of a weird contradiction because hmm. you need to stay open and you you don't want to get bitter with Fogarty I know he actually admitted like there were times he just got angry over the business and bitter keeping it simple is going to keep you um and also seeing people coming that when you get a gut feeling their intentions might be a little off you have to trust that yeah. so I have good gut instincts that I've overlooked before and I think that's when you get in trouble when you're like I should have listened to myself should have listened to my gut but yeah that stuff that betrayal stuff is is real and then sometimes people just resent you having confidence in yourself hmm. even at, like I'm not the best singer in the world but I love what I do and I'm I think identifiable now by my voice and you know it's just it's a it's a kind of a challenge just to stay well, let's talk about a happy part of okay. John Fogarty's life and also a cool Indiana connection because in 1991, he married Julie Lebedensky in Elkhart, and it turns out that he actually met her at a post-show party in Indianapolis. See, Indiana is a wonderful place because the people here are just kind of normal and engaged. She's sweet to me. Must be the luckiest man alive. I love the story, though, about John finding Julie here, because she ended up kind of lightening, making his life brighter and happier. 
there's a song on premonition called joy of my life and on the recording he he does a heartfelt preamble to the song talking about julie he told me a little bit more about that it is my one and only love song um and I, I could probably go on talking for, you know, three days. <laughs> I, I mean, on the record, I could have, you know, but I, it just seemed to me to try and say something quickly. Uh, usually people can grasp it uh, better if it's, you know, short. Uh-huh. And uh, I thought, I, I just said kind of how I feel about what love is because I'm a guy who hasn't really experienced lots of that until uh, later in my life. Um, and if tr- love truly is the best thing in, in this world, if you want to look at, you know, you're a being from somewhere and you come here, as we all do, uh-huh. and you're placed in this world, well, yeah, you know, peppermint ice cream's pretty good, <laughs> and auto racing's pretty cool, I suppose, but uh, the best thing is love, meaning a love of a man and woman, or a, a parents and a child, or uh, siblings to each other, or friend to friend. I mean, it's just so much better than all the other stuff. And I, you know, in my kind of mumbling way, that's what I was trying to get across. And that I have found the love of my life, and it is my. This is my honor. This is my. the song, basically, and the fact that I get to sing it to her uh-huh. every night—that's my uh, the way I get to honor that feeling. If you listen closely to Premonition, uh, the great CCR song "Bad Moon Rising." In the closing uh, moments of the song, I was pretty sure that I heard John sing, there's a bathroom on the right, (laughs) which is funny because that's like one of the most famous misheard lyrics of all time. So there I was, my first big interview, and I went for it, and I asked John if I was hearing the correct thing. Right near the end, and this is the famous uh, misquote of you, do you sing, there's a bathroom on the right? On the CD yeah. that you just got? Yeah. Yes, I do. All right. Yes, I do. <laughs> well, it's hard. You know, enough people told me that's what they thought yeah. I was singing yeah. in the first place. I decided to do it. I love that story because it's funny and it shows that he has a sense of humor. And without your sense of humor, you're just sad. I mean, the sense <laughs> of humor for a musician, like getting you through the life and just kind of going, Oh, that's so funny that people have thought that all this time. So that's funny that he did that. And I ha- I get it. I've had people, s- I had one lady say to me at a Danville Royal Theater show, I am really touched by the lyric of yours that's the pigeons in my soul. And I went, thank you. Okay. So, and I was trying to figure out where that was. <laughs> and I think it's when it's puddles of moon out my door. And it was like, well, whatever she thought it was meant something to her. Yeah. So I just said, thank you. And it was funny. And uh, hopefully, and I've, I've talked about this in writing before, but hopefully she didn't, it didn't offend her that I tell the story because I loved it. Have you written any songs that incorporate pigeons in your no, soul since then? Not so far. It's no. quite evocative. Yeah. I don't know how. <laughs> I mean, a pigeon is not a majestic. Or is it? Don't go around the night. Jenny, what a treat to have you on Dave's old interview tapes. This to me is like a double episode because we have the great musician John Fogarty and the great musician Jenny DeVoe. And the great writer 
music critic David Lindquist oh, because that's we all it is like this sort of and you know what we can add a fourth I think I told you the year that I made that record Peyton Manning walked into the music studio where I was sitting wow and I didn't know who he was so it was fantastic because to not know is great he was so nice and that's when he started with the Colts yeah he, he was in there doing uh, voiceovers for a commercial, and I was just like talking to him, like, "What do you do?" And he's like, "I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the quarterback for Indianapolis Colts." And I was like, "Cool, I don't really watch football, but good, good luck." Um, I remember good my first day, at, my first day at the Star, May fourth, was when he signed his first contract. Crazy with the Colts. I had always been a Bears fan. Yeah, Walter Payton is my all-time favorite professional. Oh wow! Athlete. And then it was pretty easy to make a transition to become a Colts fan when. You know, with you're him. starting right with, with Peyton. And I loved, I just, it broke my heart when Peyton Manning left, you know, because no matter what, I was just like, I'm a diehard when it comes to that kind of loyalty. It's like, you keep him here. Like, he built the stadium. And I just, you know, love, love luck too. But Peyton was, I ended up being this just uber fan. All right. What are you working on? I'm, uh, I've got a bunch of songs. I st- I'm kind of tapping into some of my uh, co-writers ideas like I've written these songs on either piano or guitar have uh, approached a couple different people about them and we're kind of testing out just what I want them to be and I I may end up going back to England to do something with John we've definitely talked about it over the last year several times and we we try hard to not let politics get in the way we're we're both like it's crazy times you know so we'll just talk about music (laughs) And um, yeah, he's got Brexit on that side. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, we've talked we've talked about both, um, you know, crazy atmospheres that are going on. He's game. He's like, yep, it's like having family come back, you know. Nice. So I'm doing that. And then I'm doing um, this is great. So I know this is going to probably go out in April. And then I'm going to do Rath Skeller show April 13th, which is a ticketed show. Then I do something in Muncie. And then we have a really good season like Cool Creek and going out of state again for a couple blues festivals, which I love. But I'll make a record probably at the in the fall. Nice. Well, you're a fantastic ambassador for arts in Indiana, so we thank you for Likewise. that. Likewise. Thank you. You too. And listeners, thanks for tuning in. If you have a minute to subscribe or rate us on your podcast format, all is appreciated. And we will return with another episode of Dave's Old Interpretation.